0: I am shocked, shocked, I tell you what by Stephen Harper is saying now. Hello, I'm Brian Lilly. This is the Brian Lilly Podcast. Welcome to the program. Last week, Prime Minister Stephen Harper made some comments that, well, they're common sense statements. So, of course, that has people in official Ottawa reaching for the smelling salts and uh, writing columns, pontificating on them. No, I'm not talking about the Niqab issue this time. I'll get to that in a bit. I can't believe that that issue continues to have reverberations across the country. I still can't believe that it's creating headlines at this point, And I still can't believe that Justin Trudeau has yet to be called on the mat for his part in that, equating the appeal of the Niqab ruling at the federal court with sending a boatload of Jewish refugees back to their deaths in Nazi Germany. But I'll get to that in a moment. No, those are not the comments that I want to talk about now. The comments I want to talk about are comments that Stephen Harper, the prime minister, made at uh, it was an issue related to rural Canada and gun control. He was speaking at an event hosted by the Saskatchewan Association of Rural Municipalities. Let me read to you what he said when he was asked about gun control in this country. He said, my wife's from a rural area. Gun ownership wasn't just for the farm. It was also a certain level of security when you're away from immediate police assistance. Heavens to Murgatroyd, how could he say such a thing? That a Canadian might have a gun and actually use it for self-defense? We've only been doing that in this country since it was settled by Europeans that's a racist comment to you well guns weren't here before that so but this this is the type of common sense statement that the rest of the country nods along and says "Mm mm-hmm yep and then in official ottawa and other parts of urban canada they lose their collectivist little minds over it lawrence martin writing in the globe and mail can't believe that stephen harper would do this he sees this as Harper picking more fights, starting more provocations, trying to get people on his side. He's only been campaigning on the gun control issue for more than 20 years. It was only central to his election wins in 2006, 2008, and 2011. But sure, answering a question and saying, I get where you're coming from on guns and self-defense. Yeah, that's him doing a provocation. Here's what Martin was writing in his Globe and Mail column. Whatever side of this debate you're on, it was only fitting in the current climate that this subject has entered the conversation, Martin wrote. The conservatives were already pushing hot buttons everywhere, provocative rhetoric about the niqab, saber-rattling on Russia and Iran, fear-mongering on terrorism, lock-em-up-for-forever legislation on crime and punishment. It's hard to recall a time when we have witnessed such a flame-throwing, uh, flame-throwing approach to politics, policy, and parliament. Too often, the governing party resembles a band of belligerents rather than sage public servants. How many fights do they want to pick? Are they not concerned about the impact on the country's social fabric, the dangers of pitting one Canadian against another? Hmm, what does that sound like? I think my friend Daryl Bricker uh, coined the term when he wrote a book with John Ibbotson about this. That is pure Laurentian elite BS. That is the Ottawa-Toronto-Montreal triangle sitting there pulling on their beards and going, oh, tut, 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 can you believe what he said? What a bad boy. This is how most Canadians think. That, yes, if you live out in a remote area, even if you don't, and you have a firearm and your life is in danger, that you are able to defend yourself. But, But to Martin, this is about just pushing buttons balderdash. Like I said in a video up at Rebel Media uh, yesterday, the rebel.media, if you haven't seen it or check my Facebook page, you know, this is like Wayne Easter complaining about Stephen Harper's rhetoric on terrorism and saying that's ramping up Canadians' concerns about terrorism. Doesn't have to do with, well, the, uh, let's see, on Monday there were about four different Yet there were four different people facing terrorism charges in court Monday. Plus, you had the Via Rail terror plot uh, that's still going on. So that'd be five cases. The Victoria case still going on. So that's six different terrorism cases before the courts. Then we've got all the Canadians leaving the country to go and fight for ISIS. And, well, you can see why Canadians might be concerned that our country is actually having a part in what's happening overseas related to terrorist groups like ISIS, like al-Shabaab, that Canadians have joined in stupidly large numbers. But no, to Wayne Easter, it's all due to Stephen Harper's provocations. Just like with Lawrence Martin, can you tell him a little bit worked up? It's only going to get worse, folks. Wendy Kukier, quoted in The Ottawa Citizen, she's with the Canadian Coalition for Gun Control, Here's what she told the citizen about Harper's statements. Now, remember, this is almost a week ago he made these statements, but the media is catching up to them now, so now they're controversial. When he said them in Saskatchewan, people just nodded and said, "Yep, yeah, mm-hmm, yeah, makes sense to me. Not an official Ottawa. QKA emailed the citizen a statement which read, the prime minister seems to be implying firearms are used for personal protection against criminals, which is not the usual purpose for having firearms in rural areas and is at odds with safe storage requirements that only allow guns to be unlocked if there is a reason to assume that there is an imminent threat. The suggestion that rural people have firearms in case uh, the police cannot reach them in time is not consistent with Canadian law on lawful use of force, but smacks of American arming for self-protection. I love how they always reach for the Americanisms in there. This is, this is American. I bet she doesn't realize that until probably the, the 1970s, Canadian gun control laws were not that different from Americans. At one point, we had freer. We were much freer on the gun issue than the Americans, or at least as free. And it's only been in the last several decades that the urban elites have been able to move the country away from that. There was no effective lobby group to stop them before. That has changed now, and people are pushing back. We don't have a gun crime issue in this country, not with law-abiding firearms owners. We have a gang problem in different parts of the country. That is what causes gun crime, not someone having a shotgun or rifle in their home or or even a pistol, whether we're talking about living in downtown Toronto or in rural Saskatchewan. It doesn't make a difference. Those are not the people committing crimes. You can't dine out on a coal polytechnique forever. It was an anomaly. And you do not build entire public policy uh, based upon anomalies. But that's what she'd like to do. She'd like to use that in uh, Dawson College and say no one should have guns. And if you do, well, they've got to be locked up. The citizen also quoted Eric Gotardi. He is with the Canadian Bar Association Criminal Law Division. He's warning that you better not use a gun for self-defense or you will end up in jail. I mean, I don't think that he's wrong. I think you will, but you shouldn't, and I'll explain that in a moment. Gattardi said, deadly force through the use of a gun would never be justified unless the situation turned into one that was life-threatening. And at that point, you're really talking about self-defense. At 3 a.m., if someone's breaking into your house, you might think that your life is in danger, but the reality is that if it's an unarmed intruder and you blow them away, you're going to be arrested for murder. Has anyone talked about blowing away unarmed intruders, except the people that say you shouldn't be able to use guns? No. But this is their fear-mongering. You want to talk about fear-mongering, Lawrence Martin? You're fear-mongering. Wendy Cookier's fear-mongering. And this Eric Cotardi from the Bar Association. You are the ones that are fear-mongering. Not law-abiding gun owners, whether they use firearms in self-defense or not. By the way, this is allowed. Let me bring up the Citizens Arrest and Self-Defense Act, which says a person is not guilty of an offense if they believe on reasonable grounds that force is being used against them or another person or that a threat of force is being made against them or another person. The act that constitutes the offense is committed for the purpose of defending or protecting themselves or the other person from that threat of force And the act committed is reasonable in the circumstances. Now, that act never should have had to have been passed. But it was. It was passed, and it was passed because of cases like Ian Thompson from down near St. Catharines, Ontario, who was having his home firebombed by four men. I believe it was four men. Having his home firebombed at the early hours, they're yelling, we're going to kill you, you're going to die inside this home, His house is on fire. He gets his handgun, which was locked up. He gets his handgun, fires warning shots. He could have killed them. He fires warning shots. They run off. He puts out the fire. By the time officials arrive, he's sitting in his home. They charge him with reckless storage or unsafe storage, and they charge him with reckless use of a handgun. He was facing more jail time than the people trying to burn down his house. In the end, he was acquitted, but not after being financially ruined by the ordeal. There are countless stories like Ian Thompson across the country, people who did use firearms to protect themselves and then face the wrath of the law in a way it was never intended. So you want to talk about fear-mongering Lawrence Martin? You want to talk about fear-mongering Wendy Kukia or Eric Gautardi? The fear is with the law-abiding gun owners who, who are worried. That when seconds count, police are minutes away. Minutes. I'm not talking two minutes, three minutes. We're talking 20, 40. What can happen to you in 40 minutes when there's an intruder? Would you feel safe? What would you do? Think about that. Think about that before you accuse law abiding firearms owners or the prime minister that's standing up for them of fear mongering. Just because they don't fall in with your your Laurentian elite, that is the best term for it. They don't fall in with your Laurentian elite point of view doesn't mean that they're wrong or that they're fear-mongering. But what, what these people want is for everyone just to, to go along with what the, the folks that know best think. I say no to that. So across Quebec, the political elites are coming out and they're denouncing Stephen Harper on this. Liberal Party House leader, that means he sits on the government side. He said this. Jean-Marc Fournier is his name. He said, this is uh, not really my vision of Canada. This does not correspond to what Canada is, to its system of justice and protection of the public. Then CAC leader just think of that name, CAC leader, Francois Legault, said, In Quebec, we experience the drama of polytechnique. We are for the firearms registry, and we want to limit the use of firearms. There is a consensus in Quebec when it comes to this uh, position. When you experience the polytechnique drama, you don't try and win a few votes here and there. Let's be clear. In Quebec, we want fewer guns. No, Mr. Legault, in Montreal, you want fewer guns in montreal try and get out of montreal for for a little bit even into quebec city you're going to find more support for for firearms owners and less support for the gun registry get the hell out of downtown i've been pointing this out for years i found a story i did back in 2009 on this issue a poll from decima research at the time on the gun registry you you want to talk about the consensus? 56 percent this was the poll done on should the gun registry stay or go and quebec had the highest support 56 percent of quebecers supported it take out montreal that number drops below 50 percent just like the rest of the country so don't tell me there's a consensus on this the only place there's a consensus is among left-wing progressive media and political elites they need to get their heads out of their collective butts law-abiding firearms owners, of which I am not one, but who I will defend to the end, deserve to stop being treated like criminals simply for doing what Canadians have been doing for decades. I've been reading a book called Arming and Disarming Canada, and it is fascinating to read. And maybe people like Francois Legault and Jean-Marc Fournier and, and even Lawrence Martin should read this book. And it tells you about the history of gun control in Canada. And do you know the the prime motive for gun control in most cases over the centuries, and I'm talking centuries, not decades, race. It was used to try and control different racial and ethnic groups. Now it's just used to try and control the the yahoos that don't know any better. They wouldn't know a macchiato from a flat white if it bit them in the behind. Well, tough. Your days uh, leading the country from Toronto, Ottawa, and Montreal, from that triangle, are at an end. I'm Brian Lilly. This is the Brian Lilly Podcast. More coming up, including thoughts on the ongoing Nacab controversy, what one MP said and later apologized for, and a chat with Mark Milkey on smaller government, efficient government. Can it be had? That from my trip to Calgary last week for the Essentials of Freedom Conference. This is the Brian Lilly Podcast. It is an odd issue to dominate headlines for so long, a little piece of cloth that goes over a woman's face to hide her from the rest of the world. Welcome back to the Brian Lilly Podcast. I'm talking, of course, about the niqab issue. This has been going on for weeks now. The federal court striking down a rule that said women whose faces were covered by a, a niqab or anything else had to uncover their faces, show their faces during citizenship ceremonies, while they took the oath. Nobody's saying that Muslim women can't wear this thing anytime they want. Other than that, it's just a requirement to uncover your face while you swear allegiance to this country. Let the judge see your face. No. Of course, the woman who um, who challenged that won in court. The federal conservatives say that they are going to uh, appeal that decision and that has been the source of controversy. I want to play you a clip now. I believe it was last week. Prime Minister Stephen Harper asked about this in the House of Commons, and he called this some, you know, a, a tradition rooted in an anti-woman culture. Mr. Speaker, it's a very easy to understand. It's very easy to understand. We don't allow people to go uncovered, uh, to cover their faces during citizenship ceremonies. And why would Canadians contrary to our own values, embrace a practice at that time that is that is not transparent, that is not open, and frankly is rooted in a culture that is anti women. And Mr. Speaker, that is unacceptable to Canadians, unacceptable to Canadian women. And that's why this government Remarkably, modern day feminism seems to decide that um, well Stephen Harper's just so evil they'd rather attack him and defend this than then stand up for women who are often forced into wearing this, who are subjugated and forced into wearing this. When did that become? When did forcing women to cover their faces become a feminist issue? When did it become a left-wing issue to say that when you swear allegiance to this country, you should be cut off from the rest of your fellow citizens? That we should throw away hundreds of years of Canadian tradition that says, when you are swearing an oath, we need to see your face. The left used to stand up for Canadian traditions as well. We had differences on economics, differences on other issues, but but the essence of Canadian democracy was supported by all sides. Now multiculturalism is so powerful that apparently we're supposed to shunt everything this country ever stood for and embrace the niqab. And if you don't, well, let me remind you what Justin Trudeau said a week ago. You're no better than than those that turned away the boatload of Jews in 1939. So we should all shudder to hear the same rhetoric that led to a none is too many immigration policy toward Jews in the 30s and 40s being used to raise fears against Muslims today. Now, it's remarkable that Trudeau has yet to be called on the map for this. Some in the media, and I'll, I'll, I'll give kudos to both Gloria Galloway from the Globe and Mail and Tonda McCharles from the Toronto Star, they both on CTV's question period on the weekend said that, uh, that this took away from Trudeau's speech. That They thought he gave a good speech in Toronto, but that this was not a good comparison. I'll agree with them on that. I would have been harsher, and I am harsher. Fine. But Craig Oliver, Daddy Trudeau's old canoeing buddy, Craig Oliver of CTV, used to go canoeing with with Pierre Trudeau, had to jump to little Justin's defense, and he thought that this was, was Trudeau in his finest form.
1: They don't have a charter in uh, Saudi Arabia. They don't offer them religious freedoms in Saudi Arabia. I thought for the prime minister to wade into conservative Quebec and Victoria Bell and make that emotional, almost angry speech against the woman in the niqab, and then to sort of repeat similar language in the House of Commons was disquieting and inflammatory, Mm -hmm. considering that we're into a debate uh, uh, about the war on terrorism. Let's hope it doesn't become... A war on Muslims, yeah. and also we're into an election debate. So this was not the right time. I, I, th- I think. He, th-
0: I think that tells you a lot about uh, Craig Oliver. But don't worry, don't worry. It's only those of us that were ever attached to Sun News in the uh, in the media that that have any kind of bias. Not Craig Oliver. The NDP, meanwhile, is facing their own split on the issue of the niqab. Alexandra Boularis, who's a prominent New Democrat from Quebec, says stopping people from from wearing the niqab at a citizenship ceremony doesn't go far enough. He wants it banned in the public service. I don't know how many people are, are covering their faces in the public service. I can tell you that if I went up to a counter in a government office to try and get service and the person would not show their face, I'm not sure that I would stick around. Not sure that I would do business with someone that was covering their face in a public or private setting that that is an affront. I'm not saying that we should ban the niqab. I'm not going that route, but I'm just saying that's not someone that I want to do business with. If you're covering your face, if I can't see you, how can I trust you? So Reese and the NDP says the government should ban it in the federal workplace. That goes against his own leader's position. Uh, Megan Leslie was, uh, was on CTV trying to explain this away, not doing a great job of it.
1: I think that we can all have personal feelings about all kinds of topics, but if you're a legislator, you have to look at what is reasonable and sound public policy. So we can have feelings about the kneecap, but you have to recognize that uh, they should women who wear a kneecap should be able to become citizens. They, they, this is a part of their religious tradition. If they choose to cover their faces, they must identify themselves. Absolutely, uh, to a citizenship judge. So, you don't, would that, you
0: agree with him that they shouldn't? A woman with a niqab shouldn't be serving the public.
1: I don't know. Working for the federal government. I don't know why a niqab would be a barrier to doing that job.
0: But there she is. She is. She is one of these feminist icons of Canada, defending the niqab, and I just don't get it. Christian Freeland from the Liberals was also on that panel, defending the niqab as well, and I don't get it. Now, none of them are in trouble for anything that they'll say. Justin Trudeau's not in trouble for anything he'll say, but, but Larry Miller conservative from Owen sound. He was on a radio program in his riding and was asked about the NACAB And he said, if you're not willing to adapt to Canadian customs at all, maybe you shouldn't come to Canada.
1: All I said was in the interview that, look, if you don't want to come in here and show your face, that, uh, Uh, immigration or uh, citizenship ceremonies, then just stay where you are.
0: Miller has apologized for any part of his statement that went beyond saying you shouldn't wear the niqab at a citizenship ceremony. His, you know, go back to where you came from type comments. Fine, I get it, Larry. I get apologizing. I'm sure you were under a lot of pressure to do so. But I'm going to bet that that sentiment is far closer to where Canadians sit on the issue than where Justin Trudeau is. In fact, a couple of polls came out this week. The majority of Canadians do not approve of wearing the niqab at a citizenship ceremony. The majority of Canadians think it is oppressive to women. There's an unusual number of people, about 30% in some of the questions, saying they just don't know. They have no opinion. I'm guessing those are people who are worried about being called racist. Now, let me remind you Islam's not a race. It's a religion. And within Islam, there are uh, debates about the niqab as well. Some say it's a purely cultural practice that has nothing to do with the religion. Regardless, in this country, we tend not to cover our faces. If you want to do that, if you want to walk around that way, have at her. But just as within Islam, there are certain times where you must uncover your face... Like the Hajj, I'm going to keep repeating this until people get it. You cannot cover your face when you do the pilgrimage to Mecca. So if that is part of your religion, you can accept that there are times in this society where you must uncover your face. Unfortunately, not enough people seem to get that. The regular population does, but again, this is a split between the Laurentian elites and the rest of us. I'm Brian Lilly. This is the Brian Lilly Podcast. Stick around. More to come, including my chat with Mark Milkey from the Fraser Institute and the author of Tax Me, I'm Canadian on economics, size of government, and more. Mark Milkey is the author of Tax Me, I'm Canadian. First
1: came out how many years ago, Mark? First one was in 2002. Revised one came out about a year ago and Still Apparently going strong. We all pay taxes.
0: It is. And also another book that um, is a bit drier, but I think equally important, that's Stealth by Con- uh, Confiscation, or
1: Stealth Confiscation, Stealth
0: confiscation yeah, uh, which is a, a real problem with the regulatory state, whether it's in Canada or anywhere else. This, these regulations that make our land, primarily we're talking about our land, but any of our mm-hmm. property, essentially useless by government regulation.
1: Right. So stealth confiscation is really about how governments used to, for example, if they wanted your land, there was a bit of an honest deal. They would expropriate it. They would pay you. You might argue about the amount, and you would negotiate on the amount, and you had some avenue of appeal. Governments have increasingly resorted to what I would call regulatory freeze. So they might, they might want your land for some public purpose, uh, so they'll regulate part of it or all of it, and it basically freezes it. You can't use it for your own purposes or part of it for your own purposes. And there's no compensation. It's sort of like freezing half your RSP and saying you'll never have access to it. So a good example of this, which happened to a very big company, which had the money to fight it, unlike most of us, was um, the uh, sea and rail situation in Vancouver where oh, they owned right, a piece yeah. of land, right? Uh, an old railway track dating back to the late 19th century and uh, CN Rail ran this through the city of Vancouver for years, shut it down in 1999, wanted to do something with the property, and uh, the city of Vancouver said, well, you can't develop it, you can't do this, you can't do the other thing. The only thing you can ever do is run a railway on it, which they didn't want to do. Well, CP Rail said, "Uh, listen, uh, you can't prevent us from, you can't just freeze it, but that's exactly what the city did. Went all the way to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court in, in a very convoluted judgment, Said to, uh, said to the railway company, um, this land can be, you know, regulated into basically a frozen state by the city of Vancouver. Now, if they can do that to a big company, uh, it makes you wonder what they can do to the rest of us. And it's problematic. Um, you know, if governments want your land, they need to pay you for it and pay fair market value. But in some cases, you get governments really either doing what they did to sea and rail or to some farmer uh, or to some rancher saying you can only use part of your land, and, um, and, and they really harm its value. And it, it really is, in some cases, an attack on retirement income because you know, if you're a rural person who has a piece of property that you want to sell, finance your retirement, but the government has done something to make it worth half of what it was.
0: Let's costs. say a green belt in Ontario.
1: A green belt in Ontario is a good example. Now, there's, you know, it gets complicated, but nonetheless, that's the basic problem with some regulatory overkill on land. All right.
0: I didn't mean to go in a whole sidetrack on, on, on your other book, but that topic is fascinating to me. Property rights are a, a topic that doesn't get enough attention in Canada. Now, I tend to argue that they are still protected but because both the Charter and Diefenbaker's Bill of Rights mm-hmm. said that um, that... They did not abrogate any rights that existed previously, and courts had recognized that we had property rights. Unfortunately, courts are increasingly ruling like they did in the CN Rail case. Um, I do question the judgment of some of our Mm -hmm. Supreme Court justices. Let's talk about taxes uh, because that's going to be a big argument in the upcoming federal election. Now, I know that you are likely in the camp that says, uh, An across-the-board tax cut is always best uh, rather than these b- boutique tax cuts. Is, would that be a fair assumption?
1: Well, yes, they just, they just make more sense. Um, i prefer a lower, flatter, simpler tax system as opposed to a convoluted, complicated one, uh, both for economic reasons. You don't see the benefit of, of that, uh, the boutique tax credits uh, to the economy, and it just gums up the system more. I'd rather see us go towards a, yeah, a simpler, flatter model.
0: That said, and I get that Mm. argument, politicians have to live in a world where they have to find a way to make people vote for them.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And while I'd rather see a, you know, broaden the base, flatten the code sort of system, I'd still, at the end of the day, rather see more money in the pockets of taxpayers than more money in government coffers. So I'm willing to hold my nose from time to time and say, well, it's still better than the alternative, which is all of us paying more mm-hmm. for some boutique program.
1: Right. Well, uh, but I, I'm, I'm not a political salesman, so you'd have to ask pollsters, I guess, what sells. But uh, my colleagues at the Fraser Institute had a very good paper a couple of months ago pointing out that if you got rid of the majority of tax credits, uh, and deductions and these boutique, boutique uh, sort of ideas in the tax system, you could collapse the uh, the middle middle rates into one rate, and you would basically have two rates in the country: uh, one for middle income taxpayers, and one for uh, that applies to higher income. So I would think it would be politically sale, politically saleable, but uh, I'm not an expert on, on what uh, you know on, on the polls that would uh, indicate that one way or the other.
0: There is still this idea that uh, the Canadian tax system is inherently unfair and that the rich don't pay enough. The Occupy movement did not die Mm -hmm. when the camps went away, whether we're talking about the camps here in Calgary, uh, the camps in uh, downtown Vancouver by the Art Gallery, Ottawa, Toronto, what have you. Mm -hmm. The Occupy movement didn't go away. It helped Barack Obama win the 2012 election. It has helped Mm -hmm. progressive politicians all over the place. And so there's still this idea that the rich don't pay enough. And it, it doesn't seem to matter. I mean, you're mm-hmm. citing a study from your economic colleagues at the Fraser Institute. Both sides use emotional arguments yeah. Yeah. as well as stats, but they use emotional arguments to try and win, mm-hmm. win their view over. And so it doesn't seem to matter how many times you point mm-hmm. out that the overwhelming majority of taxes are actually paid by those at the yeah. upper level and, yeah. and not just in uh, real dollar terms, but as a percentage of right. income.
1: Well, I guess there's two things. Yeah, you can, you can trot out these statistics, you know, so I can point out that you know, the top 1% of income earners in the country pay 20% of all income taxes. Um, and, you know. and they
0: have about 10% of total income.
1: Right, good memory, yeah. So, uh, so the wealthy are already paying a greater proportion of, of the income tax payable in the country. No, so I can trot out that stat. Let me give you a story that maybe, you know, will help things along better. Uh, I actually walked uh, by the Occupy movement. Uh, in Wall Street a couple of years ago when it was underway, still in Manhattan. It was a couple of days before it was taken down uh, in lower Manhattan. And uh, I think that was back in 2011, if mm-hmm. I recall, yeah. uh, in, in November, early November. And I walked by and took some pictures, actually, and uh, because I was fascinated by the, the dichotomy and the contradiction inside the Occupy movement. And what I mean was, there was all sorts of signs about how they wanted higher government spending on this, that, the other thing, free tuition, free medical care. A lot of things you'll see in kind of, you know, these sort of interventionist protests, if I can put it that way. They also had those signs about no resource development, no fracking, no oil exploration in the Arctic, or whatever it was, various ones. But certainly I remember the fracking signs. No fracking, right, for oil. Well, okay, uh, if you want governments to have more revenue, uh, it kind of makes sense to allow economic development, including searching for oil and gas, which we're all still using. Uh, I don't know, cutting down a tree here and there, uh, which you can, you, know, you can replace, as I used to tree plant for three summers and well know. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not rocket science. So for those who want the rich to pay more, more uh, want more taxes to flow into government, let's put it that way, all right, then make sure you're kind of pro-economic development in the good sense of, of those two words, economic development. Say yes to things instead of no.
0: Here at the, uh, the conference we were both speaking at, Essentials of Freedom, you, were talk, you kept using uh, anecdotes and stories about people on the lower income runs and, and how they can be hurt through bad policy decisions, and they're often people on the margins are hurt first. It, and that was one of my arguments against this, we've got to make the rich pay more. Yeah. I mean, there are the stats, but then there's the fact that if you go to someone who is in the 1% and you say, okay, well, you're going to pay X number of dollars more in taxes, well, they either have to find a way to make more money or they have to cut. And if they cut, well, maybe they are going to tell their teenage son, you're going to look after the grass this summer, and some they, some lawn maintenance company has lost a client. Uh, maybe they're not taking a vacation. That hurts the hotels and the chambermaids and so on. So there right. is that effect yeah. that I don't think people see.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think part of it is, again, if nobody was taxed in the country and if the rich weren't taxed, you know, the tax the rich folk would have a point. But, again, when they already pay a good chunk of, of the taxes that are paid and much higher than the proportion that they represent in the population, that's not really the issue. So I think the, the challenge for people is to understand and, and for everyone to draw back the issue to what matters. What matters is opportunity, right? So you have to allow people to make a buck and keep a buck, you know, or at least a good chunk of it. And you'll see opportunity in your province, your country, or wherever you are. Uh, I guess those are your only options. Province within Canada, some other Mm -hmm. country in the world, some other place. So that's what people need to remember, that the key is, listen, how do we we expand the pie and create more opportunity for everyone? And there's always going to be taxation. There's always going to be governments. And so that's where you get into the weeds on what types of taxes to have and how to tax people. But fundamentally, the question has to be really changed from how do we tax people more because eventually governments end up not looking at the spending side and they end up taxing all of us more. It Doesn't, it doesn't never stops with the rich once you get on that bandwagon. Uh, and all of us just get taxed more and we don't get more for, for the money often. The key question is not how do you tax people more. The key question is how do you create opportunity? And that leads to an, a, different, a different set of uh, you know, assumptions and, and thoughts about policies like taxes and, and spending and all sorts of stuff. So that's really the key question people should ask themselves. How do we create more opportunity? Sometimes that obviously involves if you're sitting in 1850 and half your population doesn't attend elementary school, you might want to tax more and get them into elementary school. But this isn't 1850, right? It's 2015, and the key question is how do you create more opportunity in a system where we already spend a lot of money through government?
0: I come from a very working-class background, and I tend to look at the capitalist system we have as the best way for people like myself to get ahead, to have that opportunity. Mm -hmm. Now, I moved uh, 15 years or so ago to the uh, worker socialist paradise of Quebec. I, I couldn't believe the levels of taxation that I was paying, didn't realize that at first. There is a government program for everything, but there is less opportunity for everyone to move up. So I mean, among the stats you were showing, there's the anecdote of uh, there's less opportunity, there's um, there, there's less economic uh, dynamism, mm-hmm. I guess I should say. But the stats you were showing in your talk, mm-hmm. Quebec has, has lower... Uh, Private investment by, uh, you know, compared to the other provinces, less private investment per worker, lower job growth, mm-hmm. and so on. So they end up having real ramifications.
1: Quebec's a great example of, uh, of good intentions, bad policy, and a lousy economy. So, I mean, look at one policy. Let's look at one example, daycare, right? I mean, who could oppose universal daycare? Well, if you care about not subsidizing the rich, you should oppose universal daycare in Quebec. I mean, what's the, what's the price of daycare in Quebec today? Is it seven dollars? Maybe they'll boost it to 14 or 21. I can't remember what the latest number is that they're proposing. The it, it'd be a Quebec. sliding
0: scale, and right. that that's getting people upset. Where right. where were all the daycares right. in Quebec? They were in Montreal's well-to-do right. neighborhoods. If you right. lived down in Uh, you know, St. Henry, um, it was harder to get in and you were on a
1: waiting list. So the key question is why would the province of Quebec and why would someone who likes redistribution, why would you redistribute tax dollars to the wealthiest people in Quebec by subsidizing their daycare bills? Uh, Why not spend less on daycare through the government, allow people to reduce their tax rates a bit bit in Quebec, uh, or where you're subsidized, you know, subsidize a low-income single mom with three kids who's trying to, you know, also get some work or an education, help her out. Right, more, not, uh, not somebody who's rich. But that's the problem with sort of universal social programs that, that aren't income tested, as is the case in Quebec or has been the case. Um, that's, the, that's the problem with policy, which is just kind of scattershot policy, which buys votes, uh, doesn't, buy you, doesn't buy you much prosperity, and it certainly doesn't buy you job creation.
0: I'll leave you with this final question because you, you've touched on it in our talk, you touched on, on it in the talk in the conference. Economic conservatives, how do you sell the message and still sound humane? I, I think that the, the message and the policies put forward by economic conservatives are ultimately more humane, more compassionate, but a lot of people don 't see it that way so how do you how do you make that connection
1: Well, uh, some taxes and some government are necessary and desirable, uh, and that's that 's the story of human history. So the key question is a conceptual one that people have to grasp you don 't want monopoly power right when you get the, the there are basically sort of three spheres you can say between people and power right? Governments have military power, they have economic power, they have political power. By necessity, governments can't have a competing military, otherwise you end up with civil wars. (laughs) By necessity, governments have political power, a majority government does uh, in any country, or quasi, you know, know, grasp on 100% of that power, political power. The institution, anyway, has all the political power, because you can't have two competing parliaments or two competing congresses, in the case of the United States, or two competing presidents. So, Governments already have two of three: political power and military power, out of necessity and out of it's desirable. On the economic sphere, that's where people can flourish. That's why you don't want to have the economic sphere injured over much. You know, some taxes, again, are necessary. Some regulation is necessary. The key question is, how do you allow the economic sphere to thrive so we can all have some jobs uh, jobs and, and some degree of prosperity? I want more than
0: some jobs. Oh, I want yeah, a lot sorry. of jobs.
1: Uh, some prosperity and, and uh, a lot of prosperity. And, uh, you know, so people have to think hard about how do you get let the economy flourish. And, uh, again, that requires some government. You require a basic skeletal organization. But what people have to get their heads around, this is not the, not the 19th century. And I don't think progressives and sometimes small-c conservatives have figured out that, well, I think maybe small-c conservatives have. We're spending plenty of money. We're not getting the results. So the question is, how do you get the results in terms of the money spent, and how do you allow the economy to expand? So the person who just migrated here from the Philippines – uh or uh in nigeria who needs a job can get that job if if we're not providing that opportunity for the immigrant person uh for the young person who just got out of school and is 17 years old and doesn't have any skills if we're not providing the opportunity by allowing for prosperity there there are people that are going to be hurt on the ground
0: all right mark milkey thanks so much
1: thank you brian